I was doing some research this week. I want to give you some numbers from Pew Research Center from a study that they did in 2014. This is, um, what is those things that are most commonly cited as essential within Christianity? And this is in order. So there's 16. So number one, what's considered most essential, believing in God. Number two, being grateful for what you have. Number three, forgiving those who have wronged you. Number four, being honest at all times. Praying regularly. Working to help the poor and the needy. Committing to spend time with family. Reading the Bible or other religious material. Attending religious services, not losing temper, helping out in the congregation, dressing modestly, working to protect the environment, living a healthy lifestyle, resting on the Sabbath, buying from companies that pay a fair wage. Is that shocking? What's missing here? There's a whole host of things missing, but number one, where's Christ? Where is Jesus Christ? I mean, we call it Christianity. Where's Christ? There's no love for Jesus Christ. Even Christ himself is missing from this. So this led me to do some more research. And in 2018, Legionnaire Ministries, you may know R.C. Sproul, who recently went to be with the Lord, who founded Legionnaire Ministries, they commissioned another research project. This reached out not just to people in the church, but here's some of their findings. And, and they're rated strongly agree, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, strongly disagree. And then there's a small percentage that aren't sure. But what I did is I just combined strongly and somewhat agree and labeled it agree. I'll read through what the findings of this 2018 study conclude. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. What do you think that percentage is? 65% agree. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 57% agree. Jesus Christ is the only person who never sinned. 57% agree. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 66% agree. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 23% agree. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. 63% agree. God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. 54% agree. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. 57% agree. What does this show? It shows that most people don't even know who Jesus is. What's John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And what's John 17, 3 tell us? This is eternal life, that they may know you the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we have whole hordes of people comfortable in their religion, but under the wrath of God. And people that identify themselves as Christians that don't even know Christ, don't even know about Christ. This isn't even asking, are you saved? 
This is just an intellectual assent to facts from scripture. And if you can't even intellectually ascend to these facts, then you can't know them, which means you can't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Not that intellectual assent is salvation, but you must have at least that. You must at least know who Christ is to know that you're believing in the right Christ. What I wanted us to do is let's fill in some of these gaps. Who is Jesus? We've been going through Ephesians chapter 1. And we've come to verse 7. We've given an introduction on verses 7 to 12. Recognizing that this first half of Ephesians 1 through 3 is the high calling of the church. The high calling of the church. Or you could say one word, doctrine. Chapters 4 to 6 is the high conduct of the church. Or you could say duty. And the section that we're looking at right here in verses 3 to 14 is the larger section, is the Trinitarian work of salvation. We see in 3 to 6, we've gone through looking at what the Father has done for his children in Christ. And 7 to 12 is what we're beginning to look at, what Christ has done in redemption. And then verses 13 and 14, the application of that redemption. By the Holy Spirit. But these first couple words here in verse 7. Literally read in whom. Referring back to verse 6. The one that is called in the beloved. Literally the one who is beloved. So what we see here. Is the purchaser of our adoption. We must know the purchaser of our adoption. To know that we actually are children. Of this God. That we are united in Christ. And you recall last week. We did just a brief introduction to our union with Christ. You recognize that there are two groups of people in this world. Those that are in Adam. And that's all of us by birth and by nature. And then those that are in Christ. And that happens when you're born again. When you're brought out of darkness into light. From our perspective that's repentance and faith. Adam or Christ? And we looked at what is the basis on which someone is brought into union with Christ? And it's only on the works of Christ. Would it shock you for me to tell you that you're saved by works? Every Christian is saved by works. The works of Christ. It's based on his works that we're saved, not our own. There's no place for our works. They're filthy rags. Our best deeds are stained. Then we also looked at what are the benefits of union with Christ. And we we listed a whole host of benefits, some of which we've even seen here in three through six, that we have every spiritual blessing, that we've been elected in Christ, that we've been adopted through Christ's work. And this is all according to the kind intention, the good pleasure of God's will, so that we would be holy and blameless to the praise of his glory. All of that is in Christ. And then we saw the burdens. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he talked about his burden being light. And it is light, but it's still a burden. And if we're to be united with Christ, we must bear it. And the foremost of that that we see, inside of love for him, is the Great Commission, which is discipleship. Making disciples. But what I want to do, as we're narrowing down just in whom, it's in whom, this beloved one, that we have redemption. It's through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So who is this one that countless, countless multitudes of people are confused about? It would be a horrible thing for any one of us here To stand before Christ on that last day. And to hear him say. Depart from me. I never knew you. Because we had the wrong Christ in our mind. And we were worshiping an idol. And he pushed us over with the goat. When we thought we were sheep. So who is this beloved one? And I think the place that we need to start. Is with 
Who or what is God? What is God? We know that God is spirit. We know that God has one essence. We know that God has three persons. We also know that God is perfect. And something that's crucial for us to understand are the perfections of God. And so what I want to do is, is go through what are the perfections of God? And I want to look at Christ as God. And I want to look at Christ as man. And I want to look at some of the, some of the obedience of Christ. The perfections of God are often referred to as his attributes or properties. It's what makes God's being what he is. God is. And to put it succinctly, MacArthur Mayhew stated like this, quote, God's perfections are the essential characteristics of his nature. Because these characteristics are necessary to his nature, all his attributes are absolutely perfect and thus rightly called perfections. Perfections is a good word. Sometimes we use attributes, but I think we can use that. That's fine. We just need to clarify. These aren't things we are attributing to God. These are attributes inherent within his nature, who he is, not what we ascribe to him, but who he is. And since we see these perfect characteristics are the essence of God, the removal or the tampering with any one of them would do what? would render him a different being. In Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, a book that's hundreds of years old, one of, one of the, the devices that Thomas, Boston, or Thomas Brooks brings out to show that he, here's a tactic that Satan uses. It is to present God to the soul as one all made up of mercy. And in our day, we would call that all made up of love. How many times have you heard people negate doctrines, negate truth, negate obedience, or approve of sin because they'll say, God is love. Oh, but God is love. Removal or tampering with any of God's perfections would render him a different being. We need to be careful. It's so easy for us to lift up a, a God after our own image and call him Yahweh and call him Jesus but actually he's something that we've created after our likeness. In short, to amend or prevent any of his perfections mean that God would no longer be God. Loved ones, this is crucial that we understand this. This is foundational to the Christian faith. A failure to grasp these truths, these basic tenets of Christianity that for hundreds and thousands of years, the church has held to. The true church is going to lead us into heresy. And I don't use that term lightly. If we're believing in heresy, we're believing in something that is damnable. In Christianity, there are some truths that we must hold to. And there are some truths that we cannot deny. So as we continue to look at what is God? I think we need to remember God is. God is. You remember Moses, when he asked for God's name, he said, I am that I am. God is. God is love. God is holy. God is righteous. God is compassionate. God is gracious. We need to remember that because God is. He is eternal. He is outside of time. God is not made up of parts. He is one God, three persons, each person being the full essence of God. So it's not love plus justice plus mercy. It's not composed of parts. And by, by way of, of side note, and to, to illustrate that point a little bit, if, if God were composed of parts, he would be dependent in two regards. If God were composed of parts, he would be dependent upon those parts because then the removal of one would make him no longer God in his essence, not just in our mental ascent. And secondly, who put those parts together? He would be dependent upon that. But the scripture says, no, there are no components in God. There are no building blocks. This is called the simplicity of God. God is a simple being. It doesn't mean that, that we can't 
that we can comprehend the depths of who he is. It means his essence is simple. God is. He's not X plus Y plus Z. We're not simple. We might be simple-minded at times, but that's different. That's a separate category. We're composed of parts. Fundamentally, we have our body and our soul. We have our material and our immaterial. And our body is composed of parts. God has no parts. His perfections are his essence. God is not merely one part holiness, one part love, one part of each of his other perfections. No, God is essentially, his essence is simple. So it's not to say that there's no complexities within him for us to understand, but we're speaking with regard to his nature, with regard to his essence. God is. And even though he has many perfections, his perfections are identical to his essence. There is no separation. Great way to picture this as a diamond. That's probably the only closest way that we could illustrate it. A diamond has many facets, but it's one diamond. And when you turn it, you might get a different look and a different look and a different look. That's what we see in Christ, is it not? What would it, what would it look like? And that's what we see in the word of God. Because God is, we see him exercising attributes and some are just emphasized in that moment more than others. And so since God is his perfections, not compounded, but simply and completely, each perfection permeates and pervades each of the other perfections. So we could say when scripture says that God is holy and scripture also says that God is love. Therefore, we know that God's holiness is a loving holiness and that God's love is a holy love and that God's righteousness is a loving, holy righteousness. So this means that God does not switch between one perfection and another, but he is all of his perfections. I know that this is a little heady, but this is so crucial that we understand this, at least on a basic level, because this is who our God is. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says what? Secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do them. God has given us a treasure trove of truth in his word. Let us be faithful to mine as far as we can go according to his spirit and by his grace and not to mine farther than what he's given. And so to deny even one of God's perfections would mean that he's no longer God because he is his perfections, not in parts, but he is. So what is God doing right now? Have you ever thought that? What is God doing right now? I can tell you what he's doing right now. Simultaneously exercising all of his attributes. If we could even say right now, because even the question has some flaws, doesn't it? Because God is not bound by time. And now is a temporal word. Furthermore, one of God's perfections is his immutability. This is going to be important. His immutability. God doesn't change. Psalm 102, 25 to 27, Malachi 3, 6, James 1, 17. There's no shifting shadows, no change, no variation. I know that you know this, but this just multiplies the impossibility of any of his perfections being changed, altered, modified, or denied in any way. Because God is, and part of his attributes is immutability. Unable to be mutated, unable to change. Are there things that God cannot do? Yes, there are things God cannot do. And I'm not talking the, you know, fallacious, logical kind of, can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? No, there are things that God cannot do. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. Therefore, he cannot change. Because he says in his word, he cannot change. Here's another thing God can't do. He can't save everybody. Why can't God save everybody? Because he's already made promises. The soul that sins will die. And people have already died. And God does not lie. He keeps his promises. It's a great comfort for us who are in Christ. And should be a holy terror for those that are outside of Christ. Because God keeps all of his promises. Could God have saved everyone if that were the plan from the beginning? Absolutely. But promises have been made. Revelation has been given. 
people have died in their sins. We have to stress this point because it's going to be foundational in the subject of who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? So when we're considering arguably the hallmark of perfections of deity, of God, which are usually these three, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. Remember, this is crucial. These can no more be separated from the divine essence than any of the other more communicable perfections. Able to be communicated. I think we all understand what communicable means now in light of what the media has been showing us. Something that's transferable. So this introduces a bit of a, a blessed challenge, if you will, as we look at who Christ is. Now, what I want us to look at now is I want us to look at, in light of just a crash course on what God is, let's look at Christ as God. Now, there's a lot of debate, which is interesting. There's a lot of debate today. Is, is Jesus Christ God? This is the orthodox little o position that Christianity has always held and always will hold because Jesus always has been, always was, always will be God. And if you, if you cannot grasp Jesus as God, let me submit to you this is the reason why. Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Your mind is still set on the flesh. You must cry out to God, and ask him to open your heart, to change your heart, that you might behold Christ in his beauty, who he is. The evidence for Christ as God is overwhelming. You might want to start getting your, your fingers warmed up and your Bibles ready. If you've got some tabs on there, you want to put them to good use. Thomas recognized this. Thomas said in John 20, 28, he answered and said to him, the Jehovah Witnesses and others will say, oh, he said this, my Lord and my God. So he wasn't saying that Jesus was God. But what does the text say? To him. To Jesus, my Lord and my God. It doesn't fit. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 13 with me. I'll start in verse 11 as you're turning there. Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, all kinds of men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of, of what? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. Turn to the right a couple pages, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to focus on verse 3 first. By way of getting there, verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and the portions in many ways, many portions, many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he, the Son, is the radiance of his, the Father's, glory and the exact representation of his what? Nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You think the author of Hebrews... Recognize Jesus as God? You want it more explicit? Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. I mean, what's his name? What was the name given? Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call him what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. From the beginning, that was his, that was his name. That, that was what he was to be. He was to be God with us. And his name is Yeshua. Yahweh saves. John the Baptist knew this. Turn with me to Isaiah 40. I'll read Matthew 3.3. 3. As you're turning there, Matthew 3, 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now look with me at Isaiah 40, verse three. This is what Matthew is saying. This is what John the Baptist was saying. A voice is calling, clear the way for Yahweh. In the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. And perhaps one of the loudest testimonies to the fact that Jesus is God comes from the uniqueness of the glory of God. Turn a page over with me to Isaiah 42, if you would. Isaiah 42, 8. The word of the Lord says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God explicitly asserts that he will not give his glory to another. In fact, in, in Hebrew, it's actually very emphatic. He's saying, I will never give my glory to another. That's the literal reading of that. I will never give my glory to another. This is one of the strongest negations in Hebrew. It's a permanent negation. Never. Not happening. No way. Does God change? Can God deny himself? Does God lie? No. Look at John 17, 5. Oftentimes I'll, I'll read it and have you note these down, but these are so crucial I want us all to see them in our own Bibles. The sinless Christ entreats the Father to give him the glory that he had before the world existed. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is one of the most powerful demonstrations of the deity of Christ, since God's glory belongs only to God. I'll show you one more along the same line. Look at Isaiah 6 with me. You know Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. You have the seraphim with six wings, and what do they sing day and night? Holy, holy, holy is who? Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what happens to Isaiah in verse five? He goes, wow, that's pretty cool. No, woe is me. I'm ruined. And he look, look at the last line in verse five. My eyes have seen the king. Yahweh of hosts. Look at verse 9. So after Isaiah says, here am I, send me. He said, go. Yahweh says, go. Tell, it's the voice of the Lord in verse 8, telling him in verse 9, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Now turn with me to John 12. John 12, 36. John 12, 36 to 41. Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. 
This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report. That's from Isaiah 52, 53. And to, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again. This is what we just read. He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because what? Because he saw his glory. He saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. Who was it that Isaiah saw seated on that throne? Jesus. Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. This isn't new information. This isn't new or unique to me. This is what the church has held for thousands of years. But it shows all the way from the beginning, Jesus is God. John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. He's calling himself Yahweh. And the Jews knew it because they, what? They wanted to kill him. Every time he asserted his deity or he forgave sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Furthermore, John does a masterful job. Let's just look at John 1 really quick. John 1, 1. It takes, it takes three phrases to accurately portray Christ as deity, yet separate from God in some way. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So he's saying in the beginning, it's echoing what Genesis 1, 1, but it's got a little different spin on it. I could just see John smiling as he's writing these beautiful truths in the beginning. When is the beginning? It's far back as you want to push it. He's not saying in the beginning of something, but in the beginning of everything was, I'm going to get nerdy with you. This is an imperfect. This is continuous action in the past. As far back as you want to push beginning, Christ was already existing. He was already existing. The word was already existing. And the word was with God, literally toward him, face to face, which, which is what? Who do you get face to face with? Those that an intimate relationship. But what does it also mean? Separate from. You don't get face to face with yourself. He's face to face with God. And the word was, and the way that John does this, when we go through Greek, I'll show you how gorgeous this is. And the word as to his nature, deity. Deity, having the quality of God, the essence of God is how that's being brought out there. It's just beautiful. This compact yet dense passage, John demonstrates that there's at least two persons in the Godhead. And the word is one of them. And we know that the word is Jesus Christ. And this is further demonstrated by what? The omnis. Omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. Because this is what you commonly hear, isn't it? Um, Jesus set aside his deity while he came to earth. We just, we just did a short crash course on what God is. Can God set aside any of himself? No, because God is. He's not composed of parts. Oh, he, 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 uh, he gave up the divine prerogatives, the will to do it. The will is tied to the nature. How many wills are in God? It's one. But what we're going to get into here in a minute, how, how many wills are in Jesus? Because the will is tied to the nature. How many natures does Jesus have? But since we're here in John 1, look at verse 3 with me. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Anything created was created through Christ. Nothing. There is no aspect of Satan was created. No aspect of creation. What does this speak to? Omnipotence. Omnipotence. 
And we see this. He raises the dead. He multiplies fishes and loaves. He tells the wind and the sea, be still. What about his omnipresence? Well, we know that passage that's mistakenly often applied to prayer, but actually has to do with church discipline. Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Or what about the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is Jesus saying there? Hey, my heart's with you. I mean, I can't really help, but hey, I'm with you. Appreciate what you're doing, wherever you're doing it. No. What about his omniscience? Well, turn over to John 147. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. John 21, 17. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, now this is where things get interesting. Because Christ is also man. Christ is also man. In Luke 1, 31 and 35, we learn that Mary conceived Jesus in her womb by his coming upon, by the Holy Spirit's coming upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. What does that mean? What does that look like? I don't know. It doesn't go into any more detail than that. But what I do know is whatever it was, it protected her. It protected him from the transmission of sin. There was, there was no corruption in his flesh. So Jesus was conceived. Gods aren't conceived. Real ones, of which there's only one. God is not conceived. Jesus was conceived in the womb of a woman, Luke 131. Jesus was born, Matthew 2.1. Jesus, as a child, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him, Luke 2.40. Does God change? What is happening here? Changes. Uh, let's just correct something that I think we use often the wrong way. We are often call ourselves or refer to ourselves as human beings. But we're not really human beings. We're actually human becomings. There is one being, God. He is. He doesn't change. But each one of us has changed since we walked in here. And each one of us will change before we leave. My prayer is that we all change spiritually to be more like Christ, of which God does. But even physically, cells are dying and being recreated. There's all kinds of things happening within us. God is not subject to change. He is immovable, immutable, perfect. Jesus ate and drank, Mark 2.16. Jesus became hungry. Matthew 4, 2. He became thirsty, John 19, 28. He experienced exhaustion, John 4, 6. He slept. He slept, Mark 4, 38. He was grieved and distressed, Matthew 26, 37. He became angry, Mark 3, 35. Jesus cried. He cried. John eleven thirty five. He experienced temptation and suffering. Hebrews two eighteen tells us, for since he himself was tempted, in that which he has suffered, 
he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He learned obedience. He learned. There was never a doubt from the people that interacted with Jesus that he was a real man in the flesh. That's a, uh, John, in his first epistle, makes that point, fighting against the proto-Gnostics. That which we have seen, that which we have touched, beheld with our own eyes concerning the word of life. We actually touched him because there was this, there's this platonic idea going around in this proto-Gnostic cult movement that was happening already from the beginning. And you'll notice, and maybe we'll go into it on a different day, there's roughly 10 main heresies and each one of them is directed at one person. And who do you think that is? Jesus Christ. And why do you think that is? Because no one comes to the Father but through him. So these proto-Gnostics, with their Platonic idea, everything material is bad, everything spiritual is good. Everything you see material has its spirit counterpart. You see a horse here? There's a spirit counterpart over there because this horse is bad, but the spirit one is good. Therefore, with that presupposition, Jesus couldn't have possibly come in the flesh because flesh is bad and Jesus isn't bad. It, it's a sound argument with a faulty premise. The logic flows, but the premise is false. Which is what makes it so appealing. I mean, when Pilate presented Jesus, what did he say? Behold the spirit. No, he said what? Behold the man. In Peter's Pentecost sermon, he identified Jesus as a man attested to you by God. Acts 2, 22. Jesus died. He died. God can't die. Jesus died. While we were still sinners. Christ died for us. But he didn't stay dead. Amen. He was the first fruits of what? Our resurrection. One of the great doctrines of Christianity is that Jesus walked the earth as truly God and truly man. And what we have just been studying that Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ is man. They are two natures united in one person without mixture to 100%. It's called the hypostatic union. A personal union, two natures in one person. The writers of scripture understood this. The writers of scripture had no problems with this. Indeed, they gloried in it. I'll read you Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God. Is that deity or humanity? Deity. Which he purchased with his own blood. Is that deity or humanity? Humanity. God doesn't have blood. But the God-man does. Paul knows that. And that's what he's saying. No tension. This is like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You don't see anywhere in scripture them arguing for the existence of God. In the beginning, God created. Well, first, let me tell you that there really is a God. Okay. Um, let me prove it to you with five simple. No. Romans 1. God's revealed himself to every individual. Everyone knows that there's a God. The problem isn't in their knowledge. The problem is in their heart, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. What about Romans 9, 5? Paul, again, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, humanity, who is God, deity, over all, blessed forever. Amen. And Paul also said Titus 2 that we looked at, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is this important? I think the obvious is because 
This is the one we're to worship. And we need to know who we're to worship. And we need to know who we're to have a relationship with. If any of you have seen my wife, you know that she's about 5'3 with dirty blonde hair. Now, if I were to describe my wife to you as someone that was six foot five with red hair, what would you think? Oh, I just love Chris. I just love, you know, she's so tall. I have to like reach up just to give her a high five, to jump to give her a high five. Gorgeous red hair flowing. I think that you would love me enough to be quick to tell me, Joey, that's not your wife. You're confused or that's not appropriate. But how many people, as we've seen even from the survey, walk around saying, Jesus is like this. Oh, the people from Bethel. I like to think of the Holy Spirit as the blue genie from Aladdin. These blasphemies and things. Jesus would never do that. God would never do this. God would do this. Do you think that they have the right one? Not if it doesn't comport with what scripture says. It's important that we have the right God, that we have the right Christ, so that we have the right relationship. So that we have the right relationship. Look with me, if you would, at Galatians 4. So we're looking at this, this aspect of redemption, the purchaser of our adoption in Ephesians 1, in whom this is the person that, that Paul is putting before us, the person that, that I've attempted to lay before you just now, the Lord Jesus Christ, one person, two natures, truly God and truly man. He lived the life that we could never live and paid the penalty it would have taken us an eternity to pay. We see here his active and his passive obedience, and this is going to be extremely important in a moment. Galatians 4.4 When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born under a woman, Born of a woman, humanity, born under the law. He was born into the law, into the Mosaic covenant. And we see that he kept it perfectly. I mean, even his parents ahead of him circumcised the eighth day. They went to the temple. They were poor, so they offered two turtle doves because that was the only thing they could offer. And he was also baptized, was he not? He was baptized with what? A baptism of repentance. Because he's identifying with his people, this group of people that he's been sent here. He has been sent to seek and to save the lost. Now, I want to ask you if you would do a Bible study, maybe later today or during this week for me, if you would look through the scriptures and find out who the lost are. The lost are a specific group of people. Lord willing, we'll get more into that next week, but we tend to use the lost as just about everybody. We don't know who's who, but scripture doesn't use it that way. And we never see sheep turning into goats or goats turning into sheep. There are only those that are sheep and only those that are goats and only that which is revealed in its proper time by God. Nevertheless, He was born under the law so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. But Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 is talking about having been predestined unto adoptions as sons. And you recognize it's not sons and daughters, because that would be two classes of Christians. The son had the highest level. Hebrews 12, the church of the firstborns. We are all inheritors. It's the son that inherits. And so he's not trying to be, let's see if we can be gender politically correct. No, he's saying this is the status level. It doesn't matter where you come from. Or if you're a man or a woman, if you're in Christ, you have that status level as adoption to sonship. And he was born, under, born of a woman, took on our nature. 
born under the law, lived out that righteousness so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. In order for us to receive that adoption, that plan, this, has to be, this had to be enacted. This is why he is the purchaser of our adoption. The purchaser of our adoption. Romans 8.3 puts it this way. For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now turn with me also to Philippians 2. Let's look at his, his passive obedience also. His passive obedience. It's not that he just doesn't do anything. He's indifferent. It's with regard to the passion. Passion of Christ. His suffering. Philippians 2.5 Have this attitude, that's a command, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who although, and it does not say, it, the Greek is not, he existed. There's a way Paul could have said that very simply. It's a present participle. Who although existing, existing in the form of God. What's form? Some of you guys remember this. Form is that outward representation of an internal reality. Right? There's a sense in which it is tied to the nature but it's representing that which is true internally. But it is that outward manifestation. It's morphe. You've heard of metamorphosis. Now you see a butterfly. Caterpillar change into a butterfly. Internally, it's got the same life. But externally, it looks different. Because it's changed form. Metamorph. Existing in the morphe of God... Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto. But he emptied himself. He poured himself out, made himself nothing. Like taking the form, there's that same word again, of a slave. What's the form of a slave? Us. You. Me. The form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in an appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming what? There's our passive obedience. Obedience of suffering. Becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Did Jesus cease being God at any time? No. Did he set aside his divine prerogatives to exercise his attributes? No. What, what was the one thing? It wasn't set aside. But it was veiled. His glory. His glory. The radiance of the splendor we saw in Hebrews 1. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration, that bright light? This is Jesus Christ. That bright light, it was peeled back for a moment. And so Peter, James, and John saw this. In, in part. But what's happening here? He's taken on a new nature. He's taken on flesh. And he's veiling the glory. The outward morphe manifestation of that internal reality that he is God. Uh, this, is the, this is the mystery and the beauty of the hypostatic union. That personal union in Christ. He never ceased being God. But now he's the God man. Still omnipresent. Omniscient, omnipotent. And here's something cool to think about. And you could think through these things in the scripture. While, while Mary was feeding Jesus. In that moment. Jesus, in his humanity, needed Mary's milk. For his life. While at the same time. In that moment, Mary needed Jesus' divinity. To hold all things together by the word of his power. Isn't it an amazing God that we serve? And there's many more beautiful truths like this. But why is this important? Why, why am I taking the time to get so technical and to go through these things? 
Well, I think I've explained it's important that we have the right God. It's important that we have the right Jesus, that we know the right truths. But also, it's important that we recognize that God is eternal and that the penalty for sin is eternal. And also, that man sinned. It was a human that sinned. It was Adam that sinned. We were under Adam and we are humans and we've sinned. So the penalty, the substitute must be made by what? A human. Because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But without sin, there is no, or without blood, there's no remission of sin. Solution. According to the infinite wisdom of God, the God-man, Christ Jesus. He's eternal with regard to his deity. He's finite with regard to his humanity. He has a body and he has a soul. I believe it was uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, the early church fathers, who said something to the effect of, that which Christ has not assumed in himself is not healed in us. Think about that. That which he went to be a substitute for us, in our place he died, condemned. Human flesh, human soul, which means what? By repentance and faith, we too can have healed flesh and healed soul. And if you're in Christ, here's the beautiful thing. If you're in Christ right now, your soul has already been healed. You already have, you're a new creature. You're no longer a sinner by nature. You're a holy one by nature. That's why Paul calls us saints, holy ones. No, we still carry around this body of death because we are, we're awaiting what? At resurrection, after who? Jesus Christ, who died and was resurrected as the first fruits of our resurrection. Because the goal is that what? That we be like Christ. That we be like him. I want to give us just a few aspects of application with this beautiful truth. Hebrews 4, thinking of what we've just learned about Jesus, especially with regard to his humanity. Hebrews 4.14 Therefore, we have a great high priest. We have who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. You know what this is, right? Nail your flag to the mast. From, for all, from what we can tell all around us, it very possibly could be the end of America. I know we don't like to think that. And I know that people have, oh, my generation said that. And this generation said that. But it, things aren't getting any better. Things are extremely getting worse. But that's okay. Our hope isn't placed in America. And the darker the, the night, the brighter the light. And we're called to be lights for Christ. But here, here's, what, here's what's being said here. Let us hold fast our confession. Jesus Christ gave the good confession before Pilate. Paul tells Timothy, I've made the good confession. We're, we also need to be those that make the good confession. We need to nail our flag to the mast. You know, you know that saying, right? When another enemy ship comes up and it says, drop your flag down. Surrender. The captain, someone on the ship says, no, go up there and nail it to the mast. So no one is able to pull it down. Come sink or swim. We will not give up. We have to, we have to be like that too. Obviously, we don't wage war against flesh and blood. But we must hold fast our confession because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He, he understands our weaknesses. Are you hungry or even right now? You can pray to him. He understands your weaknesses. Do you struggle in this life? He struggled too in his humanity. He understands your weaknesses. You know, when you put two pianos in the same room and you strike one key on one piano, the other piano Gently vibrates in that same chord. That's what this word sympathizes. He feels our pain because he's still the God man in heaven. He sympathizes with our weakness, yet he's been tempted in all things, every category, yet without sin. And that's what we need, isn't it? We need someone who's gone before us, who can, who can show us how to do it, who can give us the strength to succeed. Therefore, let us draw near.
with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may find receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Just beautiful truths. He is, Ephesians 2.14 says, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. In his flesh, he has broken down the division, dividing wall. We see a lot of comments about racism and other things going on and all these different types of what fall into the category of partiality, different types of partialities. Well, that's, already, that's already been fixed in Christ. So what's the solution for all these things that we're seeing right now? Jesus Christ. Things will never get better until people come to Christ, until Christ comes. So believer, turn with me to John, 1 John 3. I have some application for you. An unbeliever, I have some application for you following this. First off, we must, believers, adore this triune God. Glory in his majesty. 1 John 1, three. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. At what, at what extent? At what expense? Have we been purchased unto adoption? And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. How do you become more like Christ? You look at Christ. You don't look at yourself so much. Our habit is to look at ourselves and to beat ourselves up for our sin and don't. For every look you take at yourself, make sure you take 10 looks at Christ. You're not going to find any help by looking at yourself over and over and over. Now we must examine ourselves and we must repent of our sin. But we must keep our focus on Christ. Our eyes must be fixed on Christ. When we see him, we're going to be changed to be like him. So let us behold him by faith now. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let us meditate on this love. Gaze upon the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ so that we can be changed. So that we can purify ourselves unto Christ's likeness. We put off sins, put off laziness, put off selfishness, put off anger, put off bitterness. And put on what? Righteousness, love for others, diligence, compassion, joy, thankfulness. Unbeliever. You have great reason to fear. Indeed, you should stand in fear of this one who is majestic in his holiness, separate, other, holy, undefiled, so committed to his own holiness, so committed to his own justice, that he would not lessen the demands of the law, the demands of his holiness, the demands of his character, one iota, one jot. And if we've learned anything, we've learned he can't. He cannot lessen them. Therefore, in keeping with perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect justice, yet desiring to save a people to live for him now, not just now, but also for all of eternity, it was necessary that a sacrifice be given. His son, his only son. And if you think that you will escape based off some caught up ideas, some fake ideas of who God is or elevating his forgiveness or his love or his mercy over and above all his other attributes. You are sorely mistaken for you are an idolater and you think this God that didn't spare his own son to uphold his character, his holiness. You think he would spare you who are not holy, who are not beloved of him, who are nothing more than a son of disobedience, a child of wrath. Don't be a fool. There will be no hope because there is hope only in Jesus Christ. 
There is only one substitute. And I would plead with you now. Don't fool yourself. Come to Christ. For there is no other hope. Father. Lord, we are amazed and awestruck of who you are. And yet, in this brief time, we have but scratched the surface. Barely even worthy to be called an overview of who you are. Of who your son is. Lord, I pray that, that those here that do not know Christ would turn from their sin even now. Grant them repentance and faith, Lord, I pray. That they would be to the praise of your glory. And Lord, for those of us that are in Christ, oh, that this would motivate our hearts to love you and to live for you. That we would not put you off as we're so guilty of doing. Filling our time with temporary things. Things that will not last. Things that will be burned up. But let us, let us live for those things that matter. For bringing you honor and glory. There's discipleship. And prayer. Lord, we're feeble and weak and we need your help in this. And we know that you will help us. And you have sent us your son. How will you not also freely with him give us all things that we need to be pleasing to you? So let us, let us be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.